0: We're going to end up in Mark 6, but like we've done a couple of times in Mark's gospel and take a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament to help us understand Mark chapter 6. So we're going to start in Exodus 33. If you want to try to keep pace and uh, look up these verses as we go, you can, but we'll throw them up on the screens if you just want to look there um, as we go through these verses. Exodus 33, um, is the context of that is God calls Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt and after this miraculous deliverance from Egypt the people of God have made it to mount Sinai and God asked or Moses asked God there to reveal himself so that Moses will know who this God is who called him to this monumental task of leading his people to the promised land and so God agrees with this one caveat he says Moses you can't see me directly and live So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and allow my glory or my goodness uh, to pass before you. Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness, listen to these words, pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, here we are again, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until third time I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then we bounce down to the next chapter, 34, verse 4, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the clouds, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, And then verse 6 the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. And then listen to this description of who God is. This is God saying who he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then Moses' response to all of this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So we have in this language the, the mountain of God that he will pass by, that his name is his identity, and his identity uh, he reveals himself, and that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so this pass-by language, this pass-by language occurs again, In a similar scene, when the prophet Elijah has had this kind of epic battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, another mountain, and he flees to Mount Horeb after this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. God sends fire from heaven. Elijah flees to Mount Horeb, which was called the Mountain of God, and he's depressed. He's in utter despair. And in utter despair, Elijah informs God There's no one left. There's no other prophet in all of Israel. I'm done. And God has something to say about that. God speaks to Elijah. He prepares Elijah for this divine revelation, this divine encounter. And He speaks these words in 1 Kings 19.11. God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So again, mountain language where this is happening. And behold, the Lord, here's our words, pass by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then if you go on to read the rest of this text, uh, the, the, the God is, is in a whisper. He whispers. He hears a voice, a whisper. And that's where God is located. And then we go to Job chapter 9. Here in Job 9, let me read the words and then I'll explain them. Job 9, 7 and 8 Um, He who commands the sun, this is God, He who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, jump to 10, He who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number, behold, here's our language, He passes by me. I see Him not, He moves on, but I do not perceive Him. In Job, he, Job is marveling at God's unknowability, that we cannot fully know God. Our inability to fathom the wisdom of God, to understand the fullness of God's ways. Uh, Job stands in awe and wonder of who God is, how big He is, this God who... Treads on the waves of the sea. This is a common theme in the Old Testament, this God who controls and treads on the seas. We see this again and again. This God who reveals himself to his people and how he reveals himself is that he is good and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And so we capture this Old Testament image of this God who reveals himself by passing by passing by and then we get to our text in mark chapter 6 verses 45 through 46 it helps us begin to understand what's going on here so we jump into mark six forty-five. immediately there's our trigger word we've seen in mark's gospel again and again immediately he made this word made is to force someone to do something he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Now notice where they're headed, to Bethsaida. Um, we're gonna, they're going to end up somewhere totally different, but they're headed to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. There's our language again of m- the presence of God on the mountain, right? And so Jesus here, context, remember, um, when we got to the feeding of the 5,000 last week and go back and listen to the last few weeks remember this. And when we get there, the disciples have come off of this long ministry campaign. They're tired. They're exhausted. Jesus is tired. He says, come away with me. Let's rest for a while. And so instead of being able to go away, the crowds press against Him. The crowds are there. He's filled with compassion for the crowd. teaches them all day. After being tired and exhausted, He teaches the disciples are like we got to send these people home they're hungry they're hangry right we got to send them home they're going to be upset and mad and hungry at the same time not a good combination Jesus is like feed them they're like we can't feed them and then the miracle the feeding of the 5000 he uses the disciples to pass it out piece at a time bread at a time we said last week that uh, more than likely these 5,000 who have gathered in the desert are revolutionaries, are freedom fighters, are looking to make Jesus king. The John's Gospel says they want to force Him to be king. And so that's our context. And right after this has happened, the text says immediately, there's our word of urgency, immediately He forces them, He compels them to get in the boat to leave. What that means is that they are reluctant to leave. They want to stick around. They want to be there. Why? They want to force him to be king. They want Jesus to throw down. They want Jesus to overthrow the Romans, to take up the mantle to be this ruler and king and warrior, to set up this dynasty. Jesus forces them into the boat to head to the other side, and he says, "I'm going to dismiss the crowd." He prevents this kind of developing insurrection by hustling away the disciples and retreating to a mountain to spend time with the Father in prayer. This is a common place in all of Scripture to meet God is in the mountain. We see it in Exodus. We see it in Elijah and over and over throughout the New Testament. We'll see it when the disciples go to the Mount Transfiguration with Jesus. It's over and over in the mountain that people go to meet God. And so Jesus retreats to the mountain. Remember, Jesus is a different type of king. He's not the type king they're looking for. He's a different king with a different purpose. And his agenda is not to overthrow the Romans. His agenda is not to establish an earthly dynasty to rule and reign. His agenda is not to establish an earthly kingdom. He's a different type king with a different agenda. So he pushes the disciples into the boat. He retreats into the mountain to pray. He's not joining the revolution. He's not going to be forced to be king. So that's where we find Him. That's our context for what happens. And so 47, uh, Jesus is there and and He's alone. The disciples are out on the sea. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. And He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, I love how the Scripture just says this so casually, about the fourth walk of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. Like it's just like out there, right? Like... He just came walking on the sea, strolling out to them like this is the norm. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. What does that mean? We'll jump into it in just a moment. Uh, But Jesus is alone. He's in the mountain. The disciples are on the sea. They are struggling. They are straining against the sea. It says that they are painfully trying to make headway. This is the same word that's translated in other places in the text, torment, they are being tormented. They are painfully trying to make progress in the sea, but they are fighting the wind. Now we've already watched, we've already seen one sea episode, right, where Jesus was in the boat asleep and wakes up and calms the sea because their lives were threatened. This is not like calming of the sea, uh, sea rerun. This is different. This is Jesus walking on the sea um, to calm the wind. Uh, it doesn't seem like the, 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 the lives of the disciples are in danger this time. They just can't make any progress. It's like I don't know, running on the treadmill. If you're a runner, why do you choose the treadmill? It's like you may, you're not getting anywhere. You're just staying in the same place, which I can tease because when I used to run, which I always hated running because I always want to have a purpose. Like I want to be catching something, throwing something, chasing down someone, being pursued by a bear or something. There needs to be some purpose in me running. Uh, but when I would run, run and discipline myself to run, it was always on the treadmill. Never felt like I was making any progress. Or maybe this, in, in this case, it's the rowing machine. You're just on the rowing machine and you're not going anywhere. And that's what's happening here. The disciples aren't making any headway. They're on the treadmill. They are tired, fighting the wind, making no progress. And the scripture again casually says, Jesus sees them. That's the first miracle. He's alone on the mountain and he sees them. And it's not like he can see out in right? He's not overlooking the sea to be able to see him. He supernaturally realizes what's going on and he just comes to them. He is full of compassion as we saw last week. And so he comes to them. Now this takes place, the scriptures say, during the fourth hour. Most scholars believe this is anywhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So again, it's in the middle of the night, close to dawn, and he comes to them walking on the sea. And this word on the sea means On the sea, upon the sea, on top of the sea. (coughs) Jesus (coughs) walks, (coughs) cough drop, wrong place. Jesus walks on the sea. He walks where only God can tread. Where the Scriptures say only God can walk. Jesus walks there. He's not skiing Yeah, any water skiers in the house. Oh man, few, a few. I used to water ski even, I don't know, 30 years ago. I liked it when I did it. Uh, my most recent, not water skiing, but riding something on top of the water was is tubing. And so, um, Ashley's family owned a boat for a while. We were um, in Seattle uh, tubing with the kids on vacation um, a few years ago. And so we went out tubing, and I was tubing. And got thrown off of the tube and was slightly still holding on to the rope and still then let go of the rope. And for about, I don't know, it seemed like three minutes I was on top of the water. Um, no rope, no tube, just walking on the water. Except I wasn't, I wasn't on my feet. And I felt like I was on top of the water for a long time. And I felt like, well, maybe it was just my imagination. But when I got back to the boat, all the kids were like, you were, you were on top of the water for like at least a, a solid four minutes it seemed like. So... That's the closest I've ever come to walking on the water and it was unintentional and it was only because I was getting dragged by a rope on top of the water. So that's, Jesus is not getting dragged across. There's no like skis involved, no tube involved, no jet ski involved. He just walks on top of the water. And then this phrase that makes us scratch our head, He meant to pass them by. What does this mean? Jesus is passing them. Is there a turn signal involved here? Like, I'm I'm by you. By the way, if Jesus is doing this, He's in the fast lane. Because He's passing. There's a scriptural point here. If you're not passing people, stay out of the fast lane. Are you with me here? But that's not what's happening. You clap over that. Woo-hoo! Amen, brother! Everybody's not clapping. You ride in the fast lane slow, don't you? I see you. I meant that Jesus is going to pass them by. Is He in the fast lane passing? Going to beat them to the land? Right? What's going on? Hopefully you can make the connection to our introduction. The Scriptures that we read, this Old Testament language, signals moments God reveals Himself is when He is passing by His people. And what He reveals in these moments is who He is. That He is full of compassion and mercy. This language He meant to pass them by is the idea that God is revealing Himself to His people. The Son of God. Jesus revealing Himself as God. Now if we're to jump back just to what Job had to say. Job marvels at the vast separation between God and humanity. We can't fathom his wisdom. We can't understand his ways with our human capacity. God does what we cannot do, he does what we cannot even conceive of doing. He is who we are. Not. Job says his wisdom is unfathomable. He moves, if you read all Job 9, it's like he moves mountains, he shakes the earth, he hides the sun, he arranges the stars in splendor, he treads on the waves of the sea. These are God things. These are things we cannot do. This God cannot be restricted and confined to human categories. He can't be confined to natural explanations The God of Job 9 is what theologians call transcendent. He is above us. The phrase that's often used about the transcendence of God is that He is a holy other. Not a holy, like pure, H-O-L-Y, but holy, meaning completely removed. Completely other. Holy other. That's the transcendence of God. He is a holy other. That's the God that Job is painting in Job chapter 9, that God can never be confused with humans. He does what we are incapable of doing. It's why He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and says, you can't look on me. It's why He says to Elijah, I can come to you in an earthquake and a storm and a whirlwind, but I'm going to whisper to you. It's why Job says he's unfathomable. He is unknowable. But when we land in Mark 6, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he's doing something different than how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He is making God visible, he's revealing who God is, not by staying removed from them, but by drawing near to them, coming close to them. He is not removed but He is near. So that means that we worship a God who is both transcendent beyond what we can comprehend and at the same time, He is intimate. He is near to us. He is personal. He is close to us. So you see why Mark uses this language here. Jesus would have passed them by. He's revealing that He is this God of the Old Testament who is transcendent and removed, but He's a different King. He is something different about Jesus than what they had perceived in their minds. He is a God who draws near to them, who is close to them, who comes to them in the storm of life, who comes to them when they are struggling against the wind. Verse 49, look how they respond to Jesus. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, right? I'm with you on this. I'm right in the boat with them. They thought it was a ghost. They cried out. Well, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, there's our urgency word. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, "Take heart; it is I. Do not be afraid." It's interesting. The wind and the waves do not throw the disciples into a panic. What throws the disciples into a panic is seeing Jesus walk on the water. That's what frightens them. Jesus walking on the water. They are afraid. They are frightened. I think when we Read Mark four. We said they were scared. Right, this word we were used. They were petrified. They were scared out of their minds. They believe they are seeing a ghost. Now, the ocean, the lake, the sea at that time was a chaotic place, and the people's perspective of the sea was a place of chaos and and evil. And so, it'd be common for them to think maybe they're seeing some type of sea demon, right? But Jesus reassures them. He says, as he draws near, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, another significant point here, not only this idea of Jesus passing by, he's revealing himself as God, but the phrase that Jesus uses here, the phrase that is, phrase that is translated, it is I, in the original language, and I don't like to throw a lot of Greek around, but you need to know this one because this is used throughout the New Testament. The phrase here is ego I me. Ego I me. It's not like what you put in the toaster oven this morning that was a frozen waffle. Like Lego, my ego, not that kind, but same pronunciation, ego. So a lot of you should be able to remember that. Like, yeah, I'm I'm a chocolate chip, frozen ego kind of guy. Um, Ego, and then I, me, right? You can recognize that. I, me. Ego, I, me. All right? So all of us this morning are going to get to quote New Testament Greek together. We say, ego, I, me. Ready? One, two, three. Ego, I, me. There you go. You can go home and tell people you at least know. One phrase of New Testament Greek. Ego, I, me. This is translated, it is I, or I am often in the New Testament. Here's why that is important. These are the same words that God uses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses goes to the burning bush and Moses says, look, I'm about to show up to this crew of Israelites. I'm going to tell them that God has sent me to deliver them. And who am I going to say sent me? And God responds from the burning bush, tell them the great, remember it, I am, I am who I am, sent you. Same word. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew, when it was translated into Greek, we call it the Septuagint, the translation there is ego I me, I am, I am. And so the language that Jesus is using here, the words that Jesus is using here, echoes back to burning bush, God declaring, I am the great I am. Jesus is identifying Himself as the great I am. I am the God of Moses. And I'm in the sea with you. The great I am. And I hope you understand this is not just all random words pieced together. That There's a story here. There's a redemptive story that God has been writing since the opening scene. And God says, or Jesus in this moment says, I am God. I'm the God of Moses. I'm the God of the burning bush. All right? I'm the God who passes by. I'm the God who reveals himself. Do you understand the significance of the claim that Jesus is making? This is what got him stoned. The Jewish leader says he's making himself equal with God, we read in John, and Jesus is exactly doing that. So he either is God or he is not. And if he is not God, let's pack it up and go home. There's no reason for us to be here. It's who Jesus claims to be. I am the great I am. Saying in that moment. So verse 51. They all saw him. They were terrified. And then Jesus gets into the boat, 51, with them. And the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Then look at this kind of weird tidbit that Mark gives us here. For they did not understand about the loaves. He takes us back to the previous incident. But their hearts were hardened is why. So Jesus gets into the boat. The wind subsides. And the disciples are amazed. They're astonished, the text says. And then Mark throws this little tidbit in. For they they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. What? Huh? What does this mean? You see, hardened hearts are normally the call sign of outsiders, the people that are not followers of Jesus. Here the disciples, the insiders, display calloused hearts because Mark in his gospel is constantly reminding us that faith does not come from knowing about Jesus. Faith does not come with even being with Jesus. The disciples continue to fail to see Jesus for who He is. And they will continue to fail to see Jesus for who He truly is until He comes up from the dead. It's only after the resurrection that all the light bulbs go off for them. I don't even have time to chase this, but think this. Think about this in the context of he just sent them on mission. He just sent them out to proclaim the gospel and heal things, and then and heal people, and then two epi- and cast out demons. And two episodes later, they're like, hearts are their hearts have been calloused. They don't even understand who Jesus is, because he, Jesus continues to use struggling, broken people. To move the message forward. And Then we have this kind of summary passage. We're going to end chapter 6 today. When they crossed over, they came to the land um, at Gennesaret, which is a totally different place. Bethsaida is where they started. They end here. They moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately, third time we've got this trigger word, immediately recognized him, ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people in their beds to wherever they heard he was, Wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they they may touch even the fringe of his garment. If you've been here through our series, that should be a flashback for you to the lady with the, uh, uh, the, the continual hemorrhage, that she reached out and touched the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. If you weren't here for that message, I would encourage you to go back, we don't have time to... Uh, talk about the significance of what that means to touch the fringe of his garment. But again, a lot of Old Testament imagery there that the Messiah would come with healing in the fringes of his, of his garment, the prayer shawl. And so they're reaching out to even touch the fringe of the garment of Jesus to be healed, believing that he is the Messiah. And so this section, Mark chapter 6, ends the section in Mark's gospel. It ends with this summary passage that Jesus and the disciples, they end up, at a place that is not their original destination in other words they've been blown off course right wanted to go one place ended up a totally different one and as they disembark people immediately recognize jesus and the crowds bring their sick to jesus and he tours this region and heals those in need we even get a throwback to this woman who touched the hem of his garment and was healed Uh, people in need again in mark's gospel people in need again and again are drawn to jesus because he's filled with compassion his he heals them. He displays His absolute authority and power over sickness and disease. So there's two primary themes that run through this text that I want to emphasize as we end today. Uh, both the idea of who Jesus is and the idea of who the disciples are, who we are. Um, they, re- they remind us of us. So let's break down these two ideas. First, who Jesus is. And what we discover about who Jesus is in this text is that He is God. Who Jesus is, is God. Jesus is revealed as God. The one who strolls on the seas. The one who calms the wind. The one who is the great I Am, who came to earth to reveal God. What I'm about to say is so important. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is like, Read the story of Jesus over and over and over and over. Read the story of Jesus. Jesus pulls back the curtain and reveals God. And what we see in this text is a God who is filled with compassion. A God who sees us in our moments of need and comes to us. A God who is not removed, but is close and Eager to respond to us, let me also suggest. I'm preaching to myself here. Let me also suggest as we read the story of Jesus that our view of who God is should be constantly challenged. It should be constantly changing. That God is right. That God is unf- That Job is right. That God is unfathomable. News alert: We do not have God completely figured out. We do not have him completely figured out. We must return again and again and again to the story of Jesus and ask God to continue to reveal Himself to us as we seek to understand Him more fully. One thing that I have loved and appreciated about the Mark series, it has forced me into the text again and again and again to read the story of Jesus. And each time, I have asked God, reveal who You are to me. Remove all my preconceptions. Remove everything I've thought about You and just open my eyes to who You are in the text afresh. Help me see who God is through Jesus. Here's a little secret for all of us. It should give us some reassurance. We all have it wrong at some level. We all have it wrong at some level. That's good news for you. Because a God who we can completely figure out is no bigger than my feeble mind. And that is not a God to be worshipped or trusted or followed. If I can wrap God completely around my mind, He's not a God I should follow and trust. I want a God who is bigger than I can comprehend, who is more faithful than I can understand, whose wisdom is greater than mine. Right? We don't have all the answers. And so we lean in. We trust. And by the way, if if in your view of Jesus, He looks and acts exactly like you, if Jesus has all of your opinions and your preferences and your persuasions, you need to rethink your image of who God is. Like the disciples, who God is should leave us perplexed at times, confused, scratching our heads in awe of how big He is. We stand and wonder and marvel at who He is. So, if you think God's political views line up with all yours, right? If you think God's preferences in life line up with all yours, if you think God's choices in life line up with all yours, you don't understand God. And that's good news for you because he's not limited to what you make him to be. We see in this text who, Jesus, who God is, who Jesus is, and he is God. We also see in this text who we are and that we are human, who the disciples are. We are human. You ever felt like the disciples in this text? Ever felt like you're struggling against the wind, struggling in life that no matter how much headway you try and make, you just feel like you're not getting there, you're not accomplishing what you wanted to, you just feel like you're exhausted from rowing, and then you look back on your life and think, where have I got, I mean, where, what am I doing? I haven't ended up anywhere. You ever feel afraid of what's going on in your life, afraid of the unknown, right, of the person walking on the water towards you and you're just frightened out of your mind because it's it's unknown to you How about ever feel blown off course I thought I was going to end up here and I've ended up here I thought I was going to be this and I'm not I thought my marriage was going to look like this and it doesn't I thought my parenting skills were going to be these and they're not I thought my work was my job was going to be this for me and it's not I thought this was going to bring fulfillment for me and I'm more depressed than ever blown off course in life, wanted to end up one place and ended up somewhere else? You ever felt like God forced you to take a path that you did not choose? Get in the boat, Jesus said. Go, go to the other side. I didn't want this path. I didn't want this direction. I didn't want to end up here. I felt like I've been forced into this. You ever felt alone at sea? Like you're unsure what's going on around you. Have you ever felt forgotten in life, unheard, unseen? You ever felt unsure of who God is and what He's doing? God, I don't understand you in this moment. I don't know what you're doing here. What about, you ever felt like the disciples? Your heart's just grown a little cold, calloused, hard. There's not a freshness the message of freshness to the gospel. There's, I'm going through the motions. Ever reached a place in life where you just felt a little calloused in your heart and soul? What about confused? Like we are the disciples, aren't we? Because we are human. And yet there He is. There Jesus is right in the middle of the sea. Are we expect Him to be on the mountain. We, that's where people met God, was on the mountain. Moses met God on the mountain. God comes to Elijah on the mountain. Over and over again, Jesus retreats to the mountain to pray. We expect God on the mountain, removed, aloof from us. Transcendent God, holy other. He's up there, and I'm down here. And let's be honest, oftentimes, He feels like He is distant, removed from us. And yet, this text reminds us, the great I Am is not only on the mountaintop, He is in the middle of the sea, walking on the water. It's at times that we cannot see or feel Him, that He is in the sea with us. We may not be able to recognize His presence Until after the wind subsides. But there He was. There He is. He is near. And even, let me reassure you, even when we do not see Him or sense His presence, He sees you. He sees you. And He comes to us in our darkest moments, in our deepest struggles. Yet at times, at times He... He sees the bigger picture and listen, He forces us to get in to the boat where we struggle with the winds of life. Psalm 23, beautiful psalm. Remember the language of it? The shepherd leading his sheep that He makes them lie down in green pastures. I don't want to lay down. I want to be moving forward. I want to be walking. Slow down. Rest. Rest. You're being forced into the boat where you're going to struggle against the wind because it's in the struggle that you will find My presence. Lay down in the green pastures. I will make you to lie down in the green pastures because it is in the green pastures that you are forced to lie down that the shepherd is near and will feed you and grow you. It's in the struggle where He is found. Get into the boat. And it may not be until we are safely on the shore that we realize He was with us all along working all things for my good and for His glory. Let me encourage you with the words of Jesus this morning. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Be courageous. He sees you. Whatever you're going through in life today, follower of Jesus he sees you he sees you you may not feel seen you may not feel like he is near he sees you whatever you're going through in that marriage in that struggle in that sickness in that decision in that job where you're not finding fulfillment he sees you in your struggle and he comes to you it may not look like you think it's going to look. It may frighten you. But he comes to you, and he is God. Even when you do not see him, he sees you. C.S. Lewis writes in the Narnia Chronicles um, Aslan is the, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia that represents the Christ figure. Um, it's a spiritual allegory, if you didn't know that. But um, Aslan is the lion who represents Christ um, in the stories. And he, in, in the horse and the boy and his boy um, Aslan appears from over the sea, and he appears without warning. And he's exactly what they needed. And here's what it says in the horse and his boy. Aslan was among them, though no one saw him coming. They never saw him coming, and yet he was... Among them and with them. Whatever you're facing this morning, follower of Jesus, be courageous. Not based on your strength, not based on your resources, but based on who He is. That He is the God who treads on the sea. Here's what I want you to hear because a lot of times when we use this language, be courageous, it means that we need to buckle up, right? I need to bootstrap up and I need to pull my pants up like a big boy and get going and display courage like it's got something to do with us somehow. And I want you to hear me when I talk about this. Be courageous. You must see who He is to know who you are in Christ. We must see who He is to know who we are. Jesus did not rescue them out of the sea. They still had to struggle. They were still rowing. Instead, His presence enabled them to get through their voyage. To find the strength and courage to get through in Him. What we need at City Church are courageous followers. We need courageous men. Today is Father's Day, right? I don't want to pick on our dads today. As a matter of fact, let me say this. City Church has a group of men, a dads. Man, you are, you're there. You step into that space, right? You work hard. You play hard with the kids. You trust Jesus. You're stepping into it. Man, I applaud you. Be courageous. Step into that space. Keep stepping into it. They need you to lead, take heart, be encouraged, and have the courage. We have dads who make those choices to work hard and pray hard, right, and keep their hearts pure. We have dads that step into that space of like, I'm not going to invalidate my marriage by looking at porn, right? We have dads that make those choices and step into that space to trust Jesus and Pray over your family and pour into them. And I applaud you. Be courageous and keep it up. And then we have men who do not do that. And I encourage you to step up. Not based on your own strength, but based on His. Look to Him the author and finisher, and step into that space and have courage and trust that He is near. Take heart and do not be afraid. Step into the space that they need. Step into the space that your wife needs and love her and point her to Jesus. Step into the space of your kids. Pray for them. Get on the floor and play with them when you get home. Spend time with them. Work hard, but at the end of the day, work harder in your home. Point them to Jesus. Keep your soul pure. Keep your mind pure. Not by trying to bootstrap it up, but by trying to lean into Jesus. By being open and honest with the people that God has put in your life. Take courage. Step up. Do not be afraid. He is near us. We need courageous men by His strength. Guys, go to war because we're in a fight. We're in a fight for our souls and the souls of our family. And if you take the war for granted, it'll get you, right? You're in a battle. I read a Quote from Spurgeon this morning. I should have pulled it out. Where Spurgeon was like calling dads to step in, to arm up, to man up, and he says this. And I'm not talking about the the war that's going on in the world around us. I'm talking about the war that's taking place inside the walls of your house. To step into that space and be courageous. We need courageous moms. We need courageous ladies that will pray for their kids and will pray for their spouse and we need courageous ladies that will say when my husband's not leading like he should I'm going to step up and I'm going to pour into him I'm going to love him I'm going to love my kids I'm going to be courageous I'm going to be a courageous mom that takes heart in who I am with Jesus ladies some of you God has gifted you in a way to step up and lead be courageous step into that space we need courageous students. We need courageous kids that will represent Jesus and speak Jesus into a culture that is against them and speaking against them, that they will be a light in the darkness. We need courageous employers and employees. We need courageous workers. We need courageous people who are living in a culture pointing people to Jesus, finding our strength and courage in courage in the one who walks on the sea. Know who he is. Listen, we don't need more jerks. we got plenty of those in Jesus' name, by the way. We have plenty of of jerks, right? We don't need more jerks. What we need are Jesus-loving disciples who will step into a dark space and be the light. Continuing what he began. So whatever's going on in your life this morning, take heart, take heart, be encouraged, be courageous, take heart, do not be afraid, why, why should I not be afraid Well, I'm struggling in the store, why should I not be afraid, because He is with us. Do not be afraid because he is with us. And the rest of the story is he is with us and he is God.